and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. On January 1st, we gave you this optimistic view with a look as to why things may not be as bad as you thought. Man, that positivity, Mooney, just wore off real fast. 2021 has been off to a hell of a rocky start. And with so much news led by the dramatic assault on the U.S. Congress, we also want to focus on issues that aren't getting as much attention. A prime example is the surge of terrorism that's happening across Africa. Islamist militants linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have spread throughout the continent, making over a dozen countries the new battlefront for extremists after the fall of the ISIS caliphate in Syria last year. Today, we're going to dive into a very concerning expansion of these terrorist groups into West Africa and in particularly the Sahel countries with a very real impact that this could have on the rest of the world. Terrorist groups in countries like Burkina Faso and Niger and Mali and others may sound really far away, but it has real meaning for people in Paris or Washington or Beijing. And Peter, we have reported on good news from Africa. We've done a show on a renewal of African politics, another on Africa's economic reforms. But the Islamic spread across Africa is very concerning. As you as you mentioned, extremists have crept into Africa while the rest of us look the other way. And today, persistent attacks continue to mine security in the region. Indiscriminate violence, attacks on civilians and security forces, recruitment of minors, and in general, just bloody fighting have been the norm for many, many months now. And besides the threat of a transnational terrorist attacks coming from Africa, this rise of jihadism also means a, a lot more instability and in undermining um, international efforts to combat like growing drug trafficking and criminal networks in that continent. Maritime piracy costs billions in foregone trade. And then, then now there's new cyber threats from Africa, and it makes it so much harder to counter the climate and security risks, the health risks that could spur mass migration out of Africa and into Europe. And so and it also hurts attempts to stop infectious diseases and the next pandemic. After all, the Ebola outbreaks it was a scare starting in 2014 and could have been felt around the world if there had not been swift dash action taken in West Africa. Imagine what could happen now. Later in the show, we will have BBC's Africa editor Mary Harper to help us understand the global impact of this very dangerous expansion. Huni, the, the situation is bad and the impact of all of this brutality is enormous, as is the fallout caused by entire communities fleeing violent areas caused by internal displacement, especially women and children. Climate change, as Tom Friedman and others have warned over and over again, is enhancing the humanitarian catastrophe, and we're poised to see a mass exodus from the Sahel. People are walking, literally walking across the desert to get to Libyan ports, to jump on boats, smuggling people to Europe. They're walking to Egypt. They're walking to Israel, to the United Arab Emirates. Even in the middle of all this public health emergency, volunteer programs, international health and education initiatives. They've all been halted, and the violence has blocked development efforts by multilateral and local organizations. It's a, it's a serious situation for a continent that already has over a billion people and is projected to account for more than half of the world's population by 2050. 
and terrorism in the region is definitely a complex, multi-layered operation because organized groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda are able to build their networks on top of existing organized crime, ethnic infighting, and take advantage of the lack of state presence. So they basically thrive in a, in a very fertile terrorist ground. And the surge in ISIS attacks are seen in both Mozambique, a neighbor of South Africa, and Niger on the opposite, opposite side of the continent. It's, it's widespread and there are a very bloody reminder that the defeat of the Islamic State was somewhat cosmetic and very much limited to the Middle East. These groups didn't go away. They expanded. They migrated to fragile, impoverished countries that are just great breeding ground for their operations. And just earlier this month, 100 civilians, 100 civilians were killed in Niger. And the Islamic State franchise of the Greater Sahara is the prime suspect. In Mali, terrorism has spread year by year with very unsuccessful efforts to contain it as security forces retreat from the region and so on. And all this retrenching comes at a time when the U.S. government cut troops and defense activities in the Middle East and made even sharper cuts in Africa. If you look at the funds dedicated to counterterrorism that are now being diverted to pressing public health needs, France, which is the other great influential power in the Sahel, Muni, they've tried to make up for the power vacuum left for the U.S. It's France's largest overseas military operation. And last July, the head of France's armed forces said that without it, African countries in the region would literally collapse in on themselves and hugely boost migration to Europe. But it's a Effects just feel like a drop in an ocean as study after study points to the African continent as the new center of gravity for the Islamic State, bearing the largest risk of being targeted by terrorist attacks in 2021. Even countries that previously had been spared, look at Cameroon or Burkina Faso and Mozambique, they're all now being destabilized. You know, it, it, it stuck in my head when you said the power vacuum of the United States. That seems to be the theme all around. And right now, the challenge for the U.S. and Europe will be strengthening engagement while at the same time not being trapped into another long, unsuccessful counterterrorism effort. But there are solutions within Africa that are being crafted that need some support, including the governments of the Sahara Sahel region. And solutions are needed because the Terrorism Intensity Index is uh, an index that lists countries among the most risky in in the world. And there's seven countries out of the top 10 in riskiest countries in the world in this index right now. Wow, that's just incredible and shows how the frequency and the severity, the reach, the impact of these terror attacks in a region is just increasing month by month with the Sahel and neighboring states taking just the worst hits. And it's putting legitimate industries like gold and uranium extraction at severe risk and blocks the delivery of humanitarian aid to the needy. It's, it's, it's really just a, it's, you can just feel the crisis growing. And it doesn't look good in the future, although it's easy to point to the U.S. and the international community's failure to understand these mutations. The truth is in a world dedicated to combating COVID and resolving very serious internal and political issues, it's very hard to see how Africa could become a priority, both in security and economic assistance around the world. And meanwhile, countries have limited access to medical care under the current climate as well. So, Muni, let's bring somebody onto the show that really knows the region so well and, you know, is really able to discuss these issues and solutions. And we're joined by Mary Harper, the Africa editor at the BBC. 
She's reported on the continent for the BBC for the past two decades. Much of her work focuses on the violent radical Islam in Africa and sea piracy off its shores. She's reported from many conflicts in the area, including Sierra Leone, Liberia, Sudan, South Sudan, Algeria, and the two Congos. Mary has written for The Economist, for Granta, The Guardian, The Times, The Washington Post. She's a regular speaker and a moderator at all types of uh, meetings at universities and think tanks and conferences. And she's written a book about the East African jihadist group Al-Shabaab called Everything You Have Told Me Is True. Mary Harper, welcome to Altamar. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I know you're in London now and on lockdown, so we're particularly grateful. But give us a sense. You know, Africa, we, Mary, Mooney and I have just been talking about how Africa is the new focus of a global terrorist threat. And the Sahel in particular is under siege. So is the Sahara. New outposts of the Islamic State are populating Somalia and Algeria. Break down the risks for us and the regions that are most vulnerable. I mean, it is really shocking if you look at a map of Africa. It has more than 50 countries. And in fact, basically, if you go um, across the Sahel, the sort of north northern part of Africa, where the Sahara then becomes sub-Saharan Africa, that a massive belt of those countries, um, including Niger, Nigeria, Mali, Burkina Faso. I mean, the numbers of countries just keeps on growing in my job kind of uh, every month or so there'll be yet another country that's affected Cameroon it goes on and on and on so that whole stretch of kind of northwest Africa is affected by very complex myriad groups of jihadists and then if you just go a little bit further into the east into um, Somalia down into Kenya You've got another kind of um, radical Islam there, mainly the Somali Islamist group Al-Shabaab, which is based in Somalia, but hits countries like Kenya, Djibouti and elsewhere. And then um, even more kind of alarming is if you start going south, down from Somalia, down through Kenya, Tanzania and now into Mozambique, you've got an intensifying Islamist insurgency there. So basically... Huge swathes of the continent are affected by violent extremist Islam. It really is very worrying and it seems to be growing. It doesn't seem to be diminishing. It's spreading its tentacles across the continent. Give us a sense of why, I, I don't know how to put this nicely, why people should care if you're listening in Paris or London or Washington or Beijing. You know, we have a COVID exhausted audience of listeners and why is it important for people to understand what happens in in Niger and Mozambique and why this is something that we cannot ignore? Yeah, there are multiple reasons why, pe- why people should care. I mean, if you're in Europe, uh, one concern that Europe has is this um, many, many tens, hundreds of thousands of uh, African migrants coming across the Mediterranean Sea, taking the perilous journey across the Sahara Desert and then across the Mediterranean, many drowning there, and then ending up in Europe. Uh, A lot of those people are fleeing violence, including jihadist violence. So I suppose it provokes migration 
uh, which is something that Europe isn't entirely happy about. And then if you look more globally, you look at some of these groups, for example, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, they have directly verbally threatened uh, to attack shopping malls in Paris, London, the United States. They have sympathizers and funders who are based uh, in the United States and elsewhere. So as, as well as um, causing sort of human misery on the continent that then leads to migration, desperate people trying to leave, you also have a threat that might sound indirect, but given the large diasporas these countries have in places like the United States and Europe, a possibility that radicalized uh, groups uh, from Somalia, for example, who are based in somewhere like Minneapolis, whether they might stage a violent attack on American soil. That's something that the US authorities are concerned about. So it is basically a mixture of a security threat and an economic problem that the rest of the world faces because of this growing jihadism on the African continent. Mary, what you are describing is more multi-layered set of groups. How can you break them down? And then you mentioned funding. Where is the money coming from? And do they just kind of work with the existing militant groups in Africa? It's hard to understand how they are organized and, and how they compete for power. Yes, it is incredibly complex. And I think it's getting more and more complex the longer these groups uh, exist. I mean, if you think about it, it was in the early 1990s that violent jihadism took off in Algeria following a disputed uh, election. So that's 30 years that you have had this particular brand of extremist Islam spreading across the continent. And the longer it's there, the more complicated it gets. I mean, if you look at the jihadism in the Sahel, there are so many different jihadist groups there. Uh, it's difficult. I, I wouldn't even begin to be able to tell you exactly how many because they're always splintering. Um, and you have some that are kind of more internationalized that are quite clearly ally themselves with Al-Qaeda or Islamic State. And then you have other groups like um, in Nigeria, Boko Haram, which grew as a local group, uh, which has the same sort of outlook, but it is, it's not necessarily, there's some splinter groups of it that are allied with Islamic State, but it's more of a sort of regional group. And the same you could say for Al-Shabaab in Somalia, which started off very much as a local group and then allied itself with Al-Qaeda. So you have a sort of more and less globalized groups. But you also have this issue that they often kind of attach themselves or blend in with existing militant groups or rebel groups or ethnic militias. So I don't think it's right to kind of think of all of them as being purely Islamist extremist groups. They might be blended in with some other local grievances that they then exploit for their own means and ends. And in terms of the funding, the funding model seems to have changed quite a lot because there was a time, especially when you had Al-Qaeda and Islamic State having their sort of caliphates or their bases outside Africa, be quite a lot of funding would be funneled from overseas for some of these groups. But what they seem to have done, the more embedded they get into the local society, they often start taxing the local population, either extorting certain percentage of their people's salaries, 
threatening businesses that if they don't give several thousand dollars to the group, then they will attack that business, taking people's livestock. I mean, all multitude of ways of extracting money from the local populations. And in some cases, people say, I've just actually been in Mogadishu at the very end of last year in Somalia. And people were saying that they felt in some ways that they they felt they got something in return from Al-Shabaab, because if they pay Al-Shabaab tax or fee, Al-Shabaab leaves them alone. It guarantees them a degree of security, which is something that their government can't do. So in some cases, you actually get the local population saying, well, it's worth it to pay these groups something because then they'll leave us alone. We'll have a bit of protection. So it is interesting to see the way that these groups have become less kind of foreign funded, even though they will still be getting some money from overseas, but they're also getting taxes locally. And in fact, I heard from one senior United Nations official who I spoke to said that, in fact, Al-Shabaab, and I don't know whether this is true, but this is what they told me, Al-Shabaab was actually sending some money that it had raised locally overseas to help fund Islamist extremist groups elsewhere in the world. So that was really interesting because normally you think the money would be coming in to Africa But if it is true that they're actually funding groups outside Africa, that's a whole new level of threat uh, that we're confronted with. Mary, within all of this chaos, it seems that not all the news is bad from Africa. And in many countries, social and economic indicators have improved. We've podcasted about that as well. And there's a new trade initiative among African nations. Are the African nations also working together in anti-terrorism efforts, or is this too spread out and too atomized to be able to do something from the inside? I mean, there are efforts, like if you look in Nigeria and in the Sahel, there are groups of countries that have got together, for example, Niger, Cameroon, Nigeria, to try to combat the threat of Boko Haram and Islamic State-affiliated groups there. But they don't seem to have had tremendous success, partly because you've also got national armies trying to deal with the problem and then international forces as well. So they're not very well coordinated and there's quite a lot of confusion. So, But there are kind of regional efforts. You do get the same in, let's say, Mozambique, Tanzania, because they've also now been tapped by Mozambican Islamists. They say that they're going to be working more closely with the Mozambicans to try to combat that problem. You also have with the Somali example, you have an African Union force made up of countries like Uganda, Burundi, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, who are trying to deal with the Al-Shabaab problem. And they have some degree of success. But then you'll also get examples. For example, I was talking to some Ethiopian security officials recently, and they said that they had informed Kenya about an Al-Shabaab cell that had based itself in a Kenyan town. And they said, we even gave the Kenyan security forces the numbers of the hotel rooms in which they were staying, and the Kenyans didn't do anything about it. So there's the cooperation is not necessarily very effective or even present at all. Let's talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned international forces. And so we have a new president, thank God, <laughs> coming in, in the United States very soon. You know, the uh, the three most influential international powers are probably 
the United States, France, and China. Probably, I don't even know what order to put that in. So that wasn't in order of importance. But if you would, what would you recommend for a incoming president of the United States? And what would you recommend to President Macron in terms of how to help stabilize the region? In our introduction, Mooney and I quoted from a senior French general who said that without French forces, the Sahel countries would collapse. I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly some type of stabilizing force. But how much can international forces help? And certainly, you know, how much could they also be a hindrance? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you look at the case of France, some years back, uh, jihadist groups in Mali, they stormed down from the north of the country and took over two thirds of the country during a period of political turmoil. And it looked like there was going to be the establishment of some kind of caliphate there. And what did France do? They didn't wait around for United Nations resolutions and big international intervention forces. They went in with air power initially and then ground forces and basically did manage to um, not eradicate those, those groups of people, but they did manage to push them back because they acted incredibly quickly and unfortunately, perhaps, but very violently and that was relatively effective. I think you can look at that again, let's say in Somalia, where you have these United States airstrikes against Al-Shabaab, which do sometimes kill civilians and kill livestock, but they do also eliminate or make life much more difficult for Al-Shabaab to operate. So I think international air power can be quite effective as long as it is targeted as intelligently and accurately as it can be. We just had a very sad example in in Mali where a wedding party was hit by air just a yes. couple of days ago. And there was quite a lot of suspicion that it was a French airstrike that did that, even though France has, and Mali have both denied that. So I think if you, know, you, you use the international kind of air power and their, their ability to gather intelligence in a sophisticated way, that can be helpful. But then, you know, what happens is they tend to get bogged down because you look at what France is present in the Sahel. It's been going on for years. And who knows what would happen if they weren't there. But, you know, jihadism is spreading across the Sahel. Just the other day, 100 villagers were killed in Niger. I mean, you just hear again and again and again of these horrific acts of violence. And you think, well, this very sophisticated um, international force, there's also U.S. presence, British presence, etc. there. They seem unable to contain this problem. If they weren't there, would the problem be a lot worse? It's difficult to say. But certainly looking at the Somali example with the U.S. decision um, under Donald Trump to withdraw troops there. When when I was uh, in Somalia very recently, people were incredibly worried about it because they were like, the Americans provide us with this intelligence. They help, they train the most effective Somali fighting force that there is, the kind of only effective Somali fighting force called Danab is trained by the Americans. They carry out drone strikes. How are we going to cope without them? So I know there's a lot of sort of rhetoric about how it's awful to have these international Western powers intervening in these conflicts, but actually perhaps they are necessary and they do help keep the problem at least reduce the problem slightly, if not to any great extent. 
Mary, what about the economic fallout? We've seen, obviously, that COVID has decimated economies around the world, especially in the developing world. We've seen, as a result of the terrorism, mining and energy operations slowing or entirely shut down. What is the forecast for the economic situation as a result of this rising terrorism? Yes, I think it's a very interesting subject, and it's something that isn't really looked at thoroughly enough, because it, as you say, you'll get these places like Niger or Mozambique, where there's a massive natural gas project underway that has now, for the first time, been attacked by the Islamist forces there. And obviously, that is going to have an impact on these mineral extractions that are often led by uh, Western companies. And people like to talk about how Africa has made this tremendous kind of economic leap forward in the past 15 or so years, where several economies are growing at a rate of about 10% a year. But with the effects of coronavirus, has obviously hit things like tourism very hard. Trade between regions and between states has been affected because of shutdowns. Air traffic has been shut down in lots of countries. Lots of African countries have been very much more kind of rigorous and and tough in terms of closing their borders and stopping movement between different parts, of different towns within countries. So that combined with the disruption that these Islamist extremist groups are, are causing is obviously going to affect the economy and also going to frighten foreign investors off. And if you think of all these countries now where you have the presence of these groups, let's say Burkina Faso, which was used to be considered a fairly sort of peaceful place to operate. Now you've got an Islamist insurgents there. So I think people are quite wary to get involved, especially in those desert regions where there's oil, where there's mineral wealth because of the threat of these Islamist groups. Um, A last question, Mary. The human rights violations, attacks against women and children, we hear about them, we read about them. Are there any programs that are actually successfully trying to offset the human rights impact of this perfect storm that you have described? I mean, you'll get a lot of rhetoric about it. You think about, let's say, what happened in Nigeria with the abduction of schoolgirls by Boko Haram Islamists from their boarding school and those sorts of abductions, that those ones might have hit the headlines, but there's many, many other children being abducted, women taken sometimes by Islamist groups as wives, sex slaves, some might like to call it. But in terms of whether anything's being done sort of in a concrete way to try to combat this, I think because those Islamist groups are so, so difficult to control and they're so unpredictable, it's difficult to have any kind of effective way of combating or reducing those problems. You might have, let's say in Nigeria, they try to rehabilitate some of the children who've been abducted by these groups, but that's after the event. In terms of actually preventing the human rights violations in the first place, I I, I don't think that, it's almost like that's not really on the radar of the, the powers that are trying to eliminate these groups because quite often the forces that are involved in trying to defeat Islamist groups, they themselves carry out human rights violations in the process of trying to defeat Islamist groups because there's often collateral damage. And that is, I think it's kind of seen, even though they wouldn't like to say this publicly, it's just seen as that's 
part of the deal that you're not going to be able to avoid it and maybe it's what in their eyes they might say it's worth killing x number of civilians if we're going to also get rid of some senior islamist officials uh, that might be their thinking i don't think human rights really comes into into the the sort of planning that much uh, when you look at the way that these forces are dealt with mary harper Thank you so much for joining us on Altabar and explaining this incredibly complicated, growing problem in Africa. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Mary. It was great. Peter, I don't know what to say. I mean, this is so incredibly depressing and, and the solutions are so far away that it's, it's hard to end on a good note or it's hard to see what the light is out, uh, on the horizon. I don't see it. It's certainly depressing, and there's no doubt that countries that I have visited many times in the Sahel, uh, whether it's Nigeria or Senegal or Niger, it's uh, very sad to see with all the economic problems, with all the social problems that now is added on, this ethnic, tribal, Islamist component that Mary explained very well. You know, there's no doubt that there's going to be a long-term commitment by the U.S., the Chinese, the British, the French to help stabilize. But in the end, the solutions have got to come from these countries themselves. And, you know, they also need probably help from some of the regional giants such as Nigeria and Kenya and South Africa and other Ethiopia and others that have managed to handle the problem a little bit better. You know, one thing that I do think is heartening is people like Mary who have been kind of showing the reality to the world and the fact that there's more awareness at least can maybe start the beginning of some solutions. Okay. Well, that, that was your one stroke of positivity and hope. Uh, in this and we're going to end with that thank you for joining us on Altamar see you next time